Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Remotely Serious. Uh, I'm excited for this next episode. I'm excited for every episode, but I'm especially excited for this next episode because I've got with me John Lee, someone I met last year, probably almost, I don't know, exactly a year ago. Maybe, well, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe 13 months ago. It might have been September, October. Um, but in the fall of 2022, I went to a beautiful location in the Lisbon area at a uh, co-working space called Yayam. And co-working, co-working space maybe doesn't even do it justice. It's it's almost like it looked, it's a country club for for remote workers almost with a beautiful view and, and beautiful facilities. But John, I saw you there last year. You were growing work from anywhere, your company. It's been an exciting year in the world of remote work. It's also been a challenging year with the economy and all kinds of things, interest rates, uh, layoffs, and sort of a, a bit of a turn in the tech economy. So John, I'm, I'm really glad to have you on this episode to talk about remote work, digital nomads, Compliance and work from anywhere. Delighted to be on. Thank you very much for having me, Curtis. So l- l- let's get right into um, your your business and your line of work. I want to I want to jump right in there. You you were showing me some some really cool stuff when I was having coffee with you in the in the Lisbon area last year, and you were in an area that I think is um, really important. I've seen, I've been a CEO, I've been a board member. So I know how how um, certain trends like, hey, anyone can work from anywhere. The, the, there's nomad visas everywhere. The world is open. I even say uh, hyperbolic stuff like that on my podcast. I love to promote this lifestyle. But, 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 I know what it's like to sit in the board chair, sit across from general counsel, sit across from a CFO and have them say, hey, you know, we've got this, worker in Canada who's but you're paying them like a contractor and we need a W8 BEN form and just multiply that over a bunch of countries and we've we've got a situation where global remote work may be really empowering for a lot of people but we know that companies have other things to think about when it comes to a bunch of people gallivanting around the globe and working from anywhere and you are in that arena building building value and, and working with clients to help with some of the things that are maybe not so sexy, but are really important because they're about compliance. Well, absolutely. I appreciate the, uh, the intro, Curtis. And I, I think one of the things we, you know, we observe at the moment is that a lot of people, when they think of work from anywhere, they think of, uh, you know, a, a digital nomad or a laptop on the beach. Um, but actually when you look at international remote work, it's, it is so much more than that. So, the way we look at the market is kind of split into two components. You have the, what you call temporary work from anywhere, where somebody's looking to go somewhere, work temporarily abroad for anywhere from between one and maybe 365 days. Yes, that is the digital nomad by the beach, but it's also somebody looking to spend time with their loved ones or taking care of a sick parent for a couple of weeks or months at a time, for example. So uh, that's a pretty important employee benefit for, for certain people. And that's the work from anywhere piece. But then separately, you also have uh, what's called the hire from anywhere piece. And that's where companies are looking strategically more and more at being able to hire talent literally from anywhere. Uh, now, don't get me wrong. You know, they're not hiring uh, talent from every single country in the world, but they are certainly expanding the definitions of where they hire from and why they hire from there. And I guess if you look at that, the reasons why a lot of companies are looking at it, because they can get access to a deeper talent pool at lower cost, be closer to their customers. So again, reflecting back on it, it's uh, it's more than just a laptop on the beach. It's a uh, it's the whole broader concept of work from anywhere, and it's also uh, the hire from anywhere piece, which is uh, I think is going to really get more and more focus over the next couple of years. So, if we think about 
different types of companies that let, you know, I'm going to be really broad, but let's say that there's fortune 500 companies, medium sized companies and startups and the startups maybe have less risk. So they say, Hey, yeah, we'll hire remote anywhere. We're super cool. Our CEO is super cool. We're super chill about everything. Then you have the fortune 500 companies on the other side of the spectrum who probably have systems and processes for evaluating their risk if a portion of the workforce is in a different country, even for a day, could they create a tax presence? And then you have com companies probably in the middle, which are maybe not so um, uh, regimented as the Fortune 500 companies, but also maybe thinking a little bit more about their future and, and growing up a bit. Um, with, with work from anywhere, is there a certain stage of company you work with? Is there a certain version of, and I know it's three categories. There's way more than three categories out there. I'm being very broad, mm -hmm. but is there a certain type of client that it fits best or is at most risk for the kinds of problems that come, whether it's temporary workers or expats or full-time emigration to, to a different country? That's a good question. I mean, the first question, you know, we often start with is trying to understand the, the kind of companies and the industries that are open to remote work, because if they're not open to remote work, well, then it's never really going to come into the equation. And the kind of industries that are not so open to remote work would be, for example, heavily regulated financial, uh, let's say, industry or you know, banking, for example, uh, because they have a lot of geo restrictions around where they are, they're allowed to work, for example. So uh, I think that would be understanding the first place to understand which companies, which industries are, are a good place to start. If we talk about you know the kind of industries that we tend to focus on, it tends to be one uh, ones that are in maybe the consultancy world, uh, with the heavy tech component, engineering component, uh, the technology startups, for example. Um, you know, when we say startups, that can be a broad definition. Uh, it could mm -hmm. be companies that might have thousands of, or even tens of thousands of employees. Um, and so when we look at there, the kind of industries that, are, that look quite interesting, if we talk about the size of companies, what you tend to find is companies that have less than 500 employees don't tend to have a huge amount of compliance maturity and awareness. Um, and so they're willing to take in a lot of risk. And it's not until they get hit with a contract or misclassification fine or a permanent establishment issue that they suddenly realize, oh, hold on a second, we've actually taken on a huge amount of risk here. Um, and it tends to be later in their journey before they realize it. So what we find then at the other end of the scale is companies that have more than 60 or 70,000 employees, you know, they have very restrictive, conservative policies, very slow to uh, maneuver and adapt or change how they look at things. So we find kind of the sweet spot for us is companies that have you know, typically more than 500 employees and maybe less than 50,000 employees that have some kind of openness to remote work, uh, be it on, a, let's say, hybrid work in their own country, for example, where their headquarters are, or maybe more internationally where they're learning temporary uh, work from anywhere. And what's very, very clear is that it doesn't matter the size of company that you are. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. It doesn't matter how conservative you are or not. Uh, every company is at least getting some level of requests for work from anywhere. Which is, which is posing a lot of challenges. Because uh, if you look at it pre-pandemic, expats maybe were maybe 1% of an employee base for many companies. So you could afford to take a kind of a white glove ad hoc approach to expats, whereas now you know, it's easily 30 to 40, 50, 60, 70, 80% of employees at some stage are requesting a rotation. And so then all of a sudden, the volume of requests that are coming to a lot of these global mobility functions are just exponentially increasing. So uh, some companies shut it down and say we don't allow it, but other companies are trying to figure out structural processes that will allow them you know, to deal with these incoming avalanche of requests over the next couple of years. Got it. So uh, going back to kind of my question and your response, it, it sounds like more, more of the 
industry type. So you're not going to have a bank or a hospital that's delivering services in a highly regulated healthcare or financial industry versus some kind of service or consultancy or tech component company. That's more of the the kind of um, variable that determines whether a company is open to remote, which which makes a lot of sense. Um, exactly. I, yeah. Especially those when I like, recruit a lot of software engineers. So you can. what's really interesting is that even some conservative companies like banks, you know, they need to recruit mm-hmm. some highly talented software engineers. So what you often find is that even those companies that are that have a conservative public policy on, on work from anywhere, they tend to make exceptions for those kind of roles because they know they cannot get access to the critical talent unless they have some kind of flexibility. So you often find out that, that they have ad hoc policies or exceptions designed for them. Yeah, I remember. I remember when I lived in New York, I knew some people that worked at J.P. Morgan Chase, and I was asking. I was in tech, so I, you know, I can wear a t-shirt and shorts in the summer. And I was asking about just the culture, and they said it must be that everyone has to go into the office, wear a suit and tie, you know, what have you, in investment banking or whatever it is that you do, you know, whatever kind of magic arts you do over at J.P. Morgan Chase in those big buildings downtown. And they're like, yes, it, yes, it's true, but we also have all these outsourced offices around the world with all their there are different cultures that isn't really talked about. And it's kind of like the, the front stage, the front end and the back end uh, operate very differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm, I'm curious about, okay, so let's, let's take the, let's say it's a 250 person mm-hmm. tech company with a service, let's say tech, tech startup um, or tech software company that does uh, marketing software. And in 2021, 2022, they were dealing with the challenges like everyone was, and maybe they have an office in Toronto and an office in Dublin and they, they've tried to be in the office, but over the course of the last few years, the CEO is thinking about all these people that have kind of gone away because they were in lockdown and they've never really come back. They're trying to get back to the office. And then one day the CEO says, you know what? I'm going fully all the way, everywhere around the world remote. We're changing our policy. We're going to give in. We're not, we're going to stop trying to get in everybody in three days a week. We're going to stop trying to make the two headquarters, this place of culture with ping pong tables and vending machines and all that and open office space. We're going remote. And they're in this kind of period where technically, let's say both halves of the company are employed out of Dublin and Toronto, Mm -hmm. but CEO's just walked into the boardroom, gotten her top execs in and said, hey, everybody, as of Monday, everywhere remote. She pulls she pulls a Brian Chesky and says, we're going remote. Once that happens, what are some of the classic mistakes that companies or CEOs might make when they've decided, hey, anybody can work from anywhere? What are some trip-ups or compliance mistakes they tend to make when they start implementing that policy from a culture point of view and maybe aren't thinking about the compliance point of view from day one fully? Well, the, the classic mistake is to think, you know, that uh, cl- you know, work is not a place, which it is not anymore, but unfortunately you know, taxes are. So the first mistake is not to recognize that the, you know, the, the laws that have been around for, for hundreds, you know, for thousands of years around taxes, that uh, just because all of a sudden we've decided we can take a laptop work remotely abroad, that all of a sudden we, we have an exception we can do what we want. And unfortunately, you know, as much as uh, I'm the biggest proponent of work from anywhere, the first place to start with the many companies is to say, listen, you've got to pick a menu of countries that you are open to allowing your employees, your team to work from anywhere from. And I'll give you an example. Let's say on day one, your CEO says, okay, everyone can work from anywhere they want. But what happens then if somebody says, actually, I'd like to work in North Korea for nine months. Is that okay? <laughs> straight away they're going to say well, of course not i mean you can't work in north korea there's a torture risk you can't get a visa there's a big risk of permanent establishment so we don't have payroll tax capabilities there 
no, of course you can't go to a crater. So you go down this rabbit hole then of, okay, well, there's a few obvious places, places, you know, that wars are going on, for example, or that, uh, you know, are on the sanctions list. There are obvious candidates where you'd say, well, of course you can't work there. And I think everyone would agree, yeah, a country that, for example, is on a sanctions list or where a war is going on, no, we don't recommend you work there. Uh, we want to keep our employees alive if we can. But it, when you start looking at that, you recognize very, very quickly that it does make sense to actually create you know, what you would call a green light list of countries that were actually acceptable, were fine with you working from for a certain number of days. And maybe there might be an orange light list of countries where you'd say, well, you know, if you're going there, come to us in advance and we'll try and figure it out together. And then there would be a list of uh, red light countries. So countries, you know, like I mentioned, North Korea, that it's just not going to work. And so I think that's the first step. If, if countries, like the companies have to kind of figure out what does that menu look like? What's that traffic light of countries going to look like? And also how many days are they willing to accept so some companies, if they want to push the envelope, they might allow employees to temporarily work remotely for maybe up to 90 days a year. Uh, that could work. Uh, that's on the outer edge of, of it in many cases. Whereas other companies might say, no, we're only going to allow you work for maybe 15 days a year. You typically find the bigger companies tend to have a lower number of days work from anywhere. And the, let's say the, the smaller companies might have a little bit more of a risk appetite and willing to push it a, a little bit. But, but I think in the vast majority of cases, any companies that have you know, strong, sustainable work from your policies, they have that menu of countries and they have very clear guidelines. For example, you have to have to get a visa. You have to have the, a right to work there, for example. Uh, and visa is just one example that if you mess it up, you know, if you, if you, uh, you know, illegally break the visa entry laws, that's not something that a company can fix too easy. You, know, you can end up in jail because of it. And the companies don't want to have to handle that. Like, for example, if somebody entered into the U.S. illegally, that kind of huge implications for if that company wants to work in the U.S. or wants to hire talent in the U.S. in the future. Um, so there's certain risks that you have to be aware of. And I think that's the first place is pick the menu of countries. Then secondly, understand the risks that you're dealing with. And also then think of the days that you're willing to accept work from anywhere in a standard before people have to start coming with more formal requests or whatnot. And then separately uh, from that as well, looking at the positions, because unfortunately, certain positions in a company are much higher risk than others. So for example, people in sales generating roles and senior roles, for example, they tend to be very high risk. So if somebody's in a very senior role or a sales generating role, the magnitude of risks just is exponentially more for those kind of roles uh, for work from anywhere compared to others. So uh, I think that's a, you know, really crucial to have those components thought through so that before you go and announce we've got work from anywhere, that you have a clear policy and a guideline or a framework in place that allows people to know how many days they can work for anywhere in a year, for which countries, for example, what they need to be conscious of, for example, and, and then building it into a very clear approval process. So they'd be the typical places we'd say they need to start. Yeah, I'm just thinking in, in past decades, destinations, flipping it over to where, where people might go if they have 15 days or 90 days or can simply mm -hmm. emigrate and, and have the, the full year. In past decades, destinations would try and create something like Silicon Mountain or Silicon Alley and basically try and create business districts and economic zones that they would market as attractive to employers. And in Ireland, I mean, Ireland is, is, is wonderful at this. They were able to attract a lot of employers from around the world and, and new, new businesses to come and create branch offices or headquarters in, in Ireland, uh, you know, you know, a shining star in the EU for attracting that kind of business. Now we have on a much lower scale, but a growing scale, we have these destinations knowing that they can 
kind of attract the worker. Now that there's this remote work thing, they can say that uh, Costa del Sol or Lisbon or Madeira or uh, Buenos Aires is a place that workers can go. Forget about the employer for a second. If you're a worker, you can just come here. We'll, we have a shiny new mm. digital nomad visa, or remote work visa. Do you think that the what you've seen from these programs of destinations attracting workers do they get it? Do they understand the needs of the employer? Are they working with the employers enough? Because I, I feel like most of the programs are targeted at the worker. They're saying like, hey, worker, come here, remote work here in this attractive place with a visa that will let you stay here for point. a year. Yeah, no, I think yeah. that's absolutely a fair point. If you look at many of the digital nomad visas, um, you know, remote work visas that are there, they have been you know, primarily targeted at the individuals. And you know, if you look at the application process and requirements, they're typically done for somebody as an individual. When in many ways, if you want to work a bit more closely with employers, foreign employers, for example, you, you want to be able to build, you know, the, the kind of visas that will be attractive for, for the employers to be able to push these remote work visas in the first place. And I mean, I'll give you some examples. Like in, in, um, you know, when they're done right, they can be very attractive for companies to use. But in many cases, for example, you know, in the vast majority uh, with these uh, digital nomad visas, uh, they're not accessible to a company or you, or let's say an individual. If your company has a legal entity in that country, um, that's a, a first kind of a hurdle. Um, secondly, you might have situations where it's not very clear what needs to happen with the spouses. In other cases, uh, a digital nomad visa might only be available to contractors and not employees, for example. In other cases, again, there might be a lack of clarity around the, the tax side of it, be it payroll tax or maybe even permanent establishment. And, and so you look at all these factors. I mean, I would say there is a, a wide variety of, uh, of inconsistency within the, uh, the digital visas. Some of them were released by primarily driven by tourism authorities as, you know, a, a little bit of a, a marketing ploy and didn't quite have the cross, let's say, um, departmental, uh, let's say, uh, coordination between the tax authorities and the labor authorities, for example, as well, which meant you had a lot of these remote visas launched. But there were question marks around, well, if companies are going to use them, are they going to start causing them risks? Now, to be fair, some of them have been well-designed and have done well. And if you look at it from a destination perspective, I mean, money talks. I mean, if you look at, for example, Barbados, they had a huge issue during COVID with cruise passengers that fell off a cliff. They launched their digital visa and you know, within the space of a year, they had over $100 million of tourism revenue for the local economy, which uh, did a, a huge job in helping to offset the massive fall from cruise passengers. So you know, if done well, uh, they can be uh, hugely attractive. And, and not only just getting temporary visitors, but many of these temporary visitors who won't work in these destinations, uh, guess what? Some of them do stay on. They end up staying on in that country, end up founding a business there, for example, uh, or uh, if they're in sufficient numbers, maybe their employer might decide to actually set up a local entity there. So if done well, they can be very, very attractive. Yeah, I remember... It might have been a year or a year or two ago. There was a, it, it wasn't necessarily, it may not have been the nation of Greece. It may, might have been one of the regions uh, of Greece where they were rolling out a nomad visa program or contemplating it. But the, one of the components was an agreement with employers who send the employees that will give you a letter that basically formally establishes that you're not establishing a tax present here, presence here. And your employee, you know, the the kind of thing that is like the the stamp of approval for the compliance people or or the the yeah. the, the counsel at the employer. And I, I I don't remember exactly what it was. I'm going to look it up after this episode. 
but it, it, it made me think that that kind of thing probably should be happening more in the future where they kind of close the loop and not just invite the worker, but tell the employer, by the way, you're good too, you know, we'll, we'll, well do that formally. Well, ex exactly. And if you look at it for the destinations, if you can get the remote workers via the digital nomad visa or remote work visa, well, guess what? If you get them at sufficient numbers, some of the, of the employees may want to actually stay working there for a longer period of time. That's where, you know, the employer might, let's say, link up with a, a local employer record. And, and then maybe the pathway then to eventually like maybe set up a legal entity, again, if there's sufficient interest. So in some cases for these destinations, it can be a really great way of looking at your foreign direct investment funnel and attracting you know, long-term capital and talent uh, to, uh, to that destination. Yeah. And you founded Work From Anywhere in 2021. Was it spurred by the pandemic? Did you have this idea before 2020? What's kind of the origin story of Work From Anywhere? Well, for us, we had been a digital nomad family for a good number of years and we had traveled all around the world. You know, by the, by the time my eldest daughter was, uh, was four or five, she'd already been to 26 countries, for example. Um, so it had been a big part of our DNA. And uh, yeah, basically, it, it actually originated out of uh, out of failure. So my previous startup was uh, an intercultural platform in the business travel industry. Uh, we were on the cusp of uh, of uh, massive success in the business travel industry, and all of a sudden, it just completely died overnight with COVID. Um, so it ran into huge challenges. But then we took time off, and more or less in uh, Q1 2021, uh, came up with the concept with my co-founder Donald of uh, Work from Anywhere. And for us, you know, what we could see is that there was going to be what we call this work from anywhere market that would be in between expats and business travelers, but that would be a really big market because a lot of people would want to work remotely abroad with their laptop. And so when we looked at it, we could see that taxes was going to be the biggest challenge. And we kind of started that journey of building an algorithm, building an initial tool, and then uh, basically in kind of the summer of 2022, uh, managed to come up with the, the final concept of what the platform would need to look like. And then launched that in the beginning of uh, of this year and got a global partnership with Mercer which we announced in uh, in May basically so it's been a, it's been an absolute roller coaster it's been a really interesting experience we've been loving it um, but yeah that's kind of where it all started it started back in uh, Q1 2022 yeah i saw recently i mean it hasn't been that long i guess maybe 18 months later or, or, tw or 20 months later i saw that you were posting about a a partnership with one of the uh, the the big the big four HR consulting companies. I think was it Mercer that Mercer, you were that's working exactly with? It. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What yeah. what? Um, they're obviously big players in having the ear of their kind of the the court uh, mm -hmm. court magistrate next to the ear of the king of all these employers, whispering in their ear what the good software and what the good programs are and what isn't, and gatekeeping a little bit. So it's always a good thing, I would say, in this these kinds of industries to be part of their program, to be working with them generally. But how did that come about and what does that partnership mean for you? Yeah, well, for me, I, I've always been a big believer in, um, in relationships and particularly trying to meet people at events. And so uh, we actually met them at a, a global mobility event in London in, uh, back, I think it was back in November uh, 2022, I think, it, uh, I think it was basically. And at that stage, we'd had built a, you know, prototypes of the platform and had a number of countries uh, live in it. And, you know, I, I spoke at an event and I showed them the platform and they were quite interested and kind of followed up with more conversations in uh, January of, uh, of, uh, of this year. But it moved very, very quickly. I think they could see that a lot of their clients are looking for a decision making platform to help them with what is the operating model for remote work, especially international remote work. And so that's kind of where we came along. But we built a platform that helps assess, okay, what are the risks, but what do I do next? What are the solutions? What are the compliance steps I need to worry about? 
Uh, do we need to be looking at maybe a, a tax-driven solution like opening a legal entity? Do we need to look at an employment law-driven solution like an employer record or maybe an immigration solution like a digital visa? And so uh, the answer is this is, you know, it can be very, very nuanced. And that's where we came along with our own proprietary algorithm that uh, you know, we're the first in the world to come up with one that we've developed. And uh, they loved it. And the feedback from the client so far has been, uh, has been fantastic. But I have to say Mercer have been amazing. They've been great to deal with. You know, the last couple of months have uh, spoken at you know, their Top Mobility Conference in Brussels, their Global Rewards Conference in uh, Cascais in Portugal. Uh, they had a Global Mobility Conference in Amsterdam. Uh, we did a Global Mobility Conference in Milan uh, uh, two weeks ago, for example. I'm speaking uh, this Thursday at a, a major um, event for Mercer clients in Asia with over 300 companies signed up. You know, that's just a, you know, a small sample of some of the major events that, are, that I've been involved with. But they've been amazing because they give you access to, you know, these, uh, these wonderful clients around the world. But not only that, you've got access to literally hundreds of uh, very, very clued in um, you know, business development leaders who uh, know how to approach these kind of companies and know how to plug your uh, your platform in. Yeah, I I can imagine it's a it's it's rocket fuel, and you can just get in front of these companies really quickly when you when you work with them. Um, is it something where um, this is almost the key to the business, and you'd love to do? 10 or 12 different partnerships with organizations like that? Or is it more of an experiment? How do you see the future of the business in terms of direct sales versus these channel yeah, partnerships? 100%. I think for a product like this that relies heavy, heavily on trust, uh, there's always going to be a longer sales cycle if you're doing direct sales. So mm -hmm. you know, for us, this kind of referral approach is a, an incredibly important part of uh, the wider business strategy, be it a macro referral partners like big players like Immerser, or be they uh, micro referral partners, uh, you know, smaller referral people that may, maybe only might send, uh, you know, two or three referrals a year, uh, but they can also be uh, very, very important as part of the grander scheme things. And so, as a choice, you know, as a founder, you have a choice of either going, you know, investing uh, for argument's sake, twenty to thirty percent of your of your sales and building a sales team, um, or you can say, uh, all right, well, let's uh, go and use that to kind of uh, build up referral partners, for example. And for us, we we said, look, we want to build. A lot of our emphasis on referral partners so that we can focus on just executing a great technology, build a great algorithm. And there's so much work involved in getting that right. If we can do that right and have really good partners to help bring us the leads, then for us, that's a, a really kind of a sustainable long term strategy. So far, it seems to be working. Um, but again, I couldn't be more grateful for the, uh, the efforts that all of our partners, in particular Mercer, have been in that respect. Yeah. I'm just thinking when. When you've got all these companies that are navigating their remote workers, you know, one of the things is traditionally decades ago, companies might employ a bunch of people domestically, and then it would be a big deal to expand internationally. And now international employment, global remote employment can happen from day one. Mm -hmm. What are you seeing in, in with respect to the the way that employers are paying or contracting with employees and contractors we have all the classic payroll companies but then we also have these uh, sp uh specialist nomad friendly remote friendly payroll companies in the last five years oyster yeah. multiplier <laughs> deal remote etc uh, and then you know of course they could just contract like what are uh, medium. What are the, what are the kind of you know the two hundred person tech company that's got a bunch of remote workers and contractors? How are they navigating paying people and contracting with people? And which are you know are they draw, drawn to those new those newfangled payroll companies or still you know how, how do they do this? Uh, yeah, manage no, this kind of stuff. Employers of record are are a really important part of the puzzle to to have in your toolbox. I mean, if I look at it, what most companies you know, tend to do is 
they tend to pick the two or three core markets that they need to have their legal entities in. Those core markets will be where they'll generate a fair amount of their sales and they'll be core talent hubs. And that's where they're going to hire most of the people that they need. And what they'll then do is supplement it with you know, a couple of, uh, of key roles that they want to put into maybe an employer record, for example, or they want to be able to have the ability to have these people as close as possible to being important, let's say employees. They'll be technically on the payroll of the employer record, but they'll be working for them. Um, and uh, they'll be for, for certain uh, important roles. And then they'll complement it with independent contractors. Uh, so be able to access, let's say, if you need an M&A analyst for 12 weeks, why would you hire them in a full-time role? Just get them you know, in a fractional uh, role for, for a project for those 12 weeks. Uh, the tricky bit is that, you know, understanding uh, that uh, for the higher risk roles, they need to go into a legal entity. Uh, if you're a high permanent establishment risk or, you know, again, a senior sales generating role, that really does need to be in a, typically in a legal entity. Um, and some companies don't do that, especially younger companies. They maybe employ somebody in a, in a contractor route, which is, which is not very, very wise, particularly if they're in a very important role. But again, for the really important high risk roles, putting them in the legal entity, then you know, looking at uh, people that you want to put into an employer record. An employer record is where you're basically putting them on that legal entity. It's saving you the effort and time and cost of having to set up a legal entity. And what's nice is that the employer record takes care of the payroll side of it as well. The only challenge with an employer record is that it does cost you know, typically anywhere from between $300 to maybe $600 or more a month. So if it's just one person for maybe two or three years, you can probably handle it. But if it's going to be a couple of people for a couple of years, it's probably pushing you to want to consider a legal entity in that particular case. So knowing when and when not to use an employer record. What's really nice about an employer record is let's say you need to hire somebody in the morning and you know you need to have the capability there to run local payroll and whatnot and be able to have the, the capabilities with the, for local employment contract, then you can get it done in 24 hours by an employer record. So they offer a huge advantage in terms of speed. Plus, they also give you the ability that if you do want to maybe open up an employee, I'd say legal entity in a year or two time, you can still start with an employee record now and then move them on to your own legal entity in two or three years time. Uh, if you like to talk about then independent contractors, the third leg of the stool, so we've got legal entities for a core talent, Hopes, let's say you've got employers of record in countries where we're going to be exploring or we need to move fast on hiring somebody. And then the last bit is independent contractors. And that's where you, they're a very interesting model, provided they're not for somebody you want to hire for a long time, like it's in a couple of years, or they're in a high-risk role, for example, or that if you're in a country that has a high risk of contractor misclassification. So uh, I think there are some of the nuances that you need to be able to, to, to deal with. And again, it all comes back to you know not not taking a, you know, what you would call a, a, a very... Um, like machine gun approach, you need to be super targeted. Which countries are you going to be using, and what's the model you're going to use in each in each country? And I, I think that Isa Hoppen did a good job of this. When they had roles that they were hiring for in the in the last couple of years, they put out a role and they'd say, in these countries, it's going to be you're going to be hired as an employee by a legal entity. In these countries, you're going to be hired as an employer record, and in these countries, it'll be as an independent contractor. And outside of that, we don't hire. So, so that's amazing. If you think of how many times people go through a funnel you know, go through three, four, five, six, seven, eight interviews. And at the end of it all, you know, the company says, oh, well, would you mind please relocating to the US? And they said, well, why didn't you make that clear from the get-go? I'm not moving. So I think there's a lot of work needs to be done uh, in a lot of these job marketplaces to reduce some of the friction on that aspect of it. But again, it goes back to just being intentional about where are you hiring from and what's your operating model? You mentioned that you're speaking at some events upcoming and we've 
uh, we've met at Running Remote, the annual conference uh, that's now, it's been in different cities, but it's now seems to be that it'll be in, in Lisbon on an annual basis. Are there other uh, events and conferences that employers would think about attending if they're really interested in this particular piece of thought leadership, the the remote work compliance, they might go to running remote to learn about, you know, building remote work teams. Where should they go if they want to learn more uh, out on the conference circuit? Is there anything that's yeah, really kind I, of I top would, tier? I would strongly suggest uh, for especially starting with global mobility conferences. So there's a, mm -hmm. a number of kind of global mobility um, kind of uh, events or networking events that are around you know, be it, uh, for example, the Global Mobility uh, Executive is one. Uh, Benevo, a uh, very interesting company that could do a good show every week. You've also got, you know, for example, Mercer have a lot of events that they do. For example, um, there's just plenty of Global Mobility uh, events that are, that are out there. And they're really, really helpful because they give you the opportunity to go in and meet other colleagues who are dealing with these same changes and challenges in uh, many of these kind of more mid to, to larger size companies. And so they're a really wonderful place to have to learn and get, swap notes about how people are facing these challenges. Uh, they would be the, the first place that I would I would start. And I probably would say the Global Mood Executive is, is probably one of, one of the better places to start in, in that because they're in every continent and uh, they're a very easy platform to be able to access and uh, they seem to be very engaged. Yeah, I'll make, it, uh, make note of that. I want to, I, I asked this question to, to several guests because I, I like to hear about remote work events and obviously there's different kinds. There's kind of like parties and festivals for nomads, but then, then there's, you know, uh, all along the spectrum towards global mobility conferences for executives that are making decisions uh, all along the spectrum of remote work. Uh, but I've, I've only really been to running remote. I haven't gone to many events, so I'm, I'm looking at 2024. So it's almost selfishly, it's good to get some, some tips on what are the good conferences. Um, and you, you, I didn't know this until I, I met you, but it really is that you have been, unlike some people um, who might be um, total slow mads or simply remote workers or expats, it seems like in the time before the pandemic, through the pandemic, and, and it, you know, I'm, I'm sure that was that was a challenging time, but now that we're out of it, you are a digital nomad and a digital nomad with a family in the sense that you, you do make it to a lot of different places. It doesn't seem like you just are, you know, somewhere for nine months as a base and then relocating nine months as a base. I think you showed me like a personal spreadsheet you had or, yeah. or something where you, you, you'd been around, you'd gone to a lot of places and you, and you mentioned your kid had been uh, to 24 countries plus by the time she was four. Um, That's so, it. It's, it's, it's part of yeah. the DNA for both my wife and I. And, and so even our, even our kids, like uh, I think uh, Rose was saying the other day, she, you know, she can't wait to go uh, visit Thailand again at some stage. So like all these different countries, they leave a mark on our kids. Um, and it's a big part of, uh, you know, it, it's a big part of our DNA. I mean, I will say in the last year, we've been uh, just loving Portugal as a family. Yeah. We haven't traveled as, and we still have traveled, but we haven't traveled as much abroad in the last year as we had done in the past. We're quite happy to maybe just come off the accelerator a little bit for maybe uh, uh, 12 to 18 months. But, you know, we'll go back in again and then maybe do another six to 12 months of uh, traveling around the world again at some stage in the next year. I, I wouldn't be surprised. But for us, it's been amazing. I mean, it's been amazing for the kids. Already now, like they're they're speaking Portuguese and singing Portuguese songs, for example, um, and I love that. For me, like that's a that's a hugely important uh, like gift to be able to speak these different languages and understand these different cultures, for example. 
Uh, and so for us, yeah, it, it's been a big part of our DNA, but it was a big part of our DNA before, you know, before, uh, you know, work from anywhere, even before my previous startup, you know, both my wife and I, uh, before we started the previous startup, we, we traveled all around the world anyway. And even before I met my wife, you know, I had been traveling and living around the world before as well. I lived in the Netherlands for eight years, lived in Germany, for example, um, and uh, lived in Ireland and then used that to travel all around uh, Europe, for example. So it's been a, a big part of our, our, our DNA. Have you had to start thinking about uh, sort of digital nomad school or, you know, school in a different country, whatever that means, because I know you live in, you can live in Portugal. Well, yeah, so. there, there, there is. And what's really interesting is that there's a lot of innovation going on here in this particular space, you know. So uh, we deliberately chose the school that we're kids in right now, um, a school called Aprendizes, because when you go to most countries, they either give you a choice of putting people into the local school or into an expat school. What we liked about Aprendizes is that they're, it's a school that's led by Portuguese. They get to speak about 80% Portuguese, 20% English, um, and they get to really feel and live and breathe uh, Portuguese culture. But it's very heavily influenced by the Nordic uh, schooling philosophy, but it's on the international schooling system. So they managed to get the best of both worlds, which is really, really unusual. Um, and I think we're also seeing, you know, for also temporary work from anywhere uh, schooling models uh, with the likes of uh, boundless, uh, boundless Life is, uh, is, is one. Um, that they have operations, I think, in Greece and in, in Portugal uh, and some other places as well. And you also have Working Without Borders that have, uh, you know, some, uh, let's say, temporary family workation uh, retreats and holidays uh, with, with other remote working families in the likes of, I think, Costa Rica and Colombia and many others. So I think we're seeing an emergence of really interesting novel solutions that are helping to address some of these challenges. Because I think education, when we looked at it, it, it is the biggest uh, barrier and pain point. Um, particularly if you're in an education system, the likes of the uh, of US or UK, that's very restrictive. If your kids are out of school for more than a week, then you really get heavily penalized. So I think there is a burning desire for you know many parents who have a, a real like, love and a longing for travel to be able to give their kids some of that experience they got traveling around the world as well, so, which is in and of itself, that intercultural experience and education is very powerful for their kids. And it's a learning in and of itself. For someone who has been a digital nomad or maybe would like to be a digital nomad, but they just had their first kid and now they think, I can't do it now. I can't do it anymore. That that era of my life is now over. What would you tell that person who's maybe having doubts about remote lifestyle with a kid? Oh, I, I couldn't disagree more. I mean, to be honest, once you're once you're once you've got a, a you know a fine healthy kid, once they hit about four months, you know, you should be absolutely game ball. You know, we had uh, roads around in one of these uh, slings and we were traveling all around the world. And it was amazing, absolutely amazing experience. And we went through all sorts of weather conditions from absolutely freezing cold uh, in, uh, in, in in South Korea and, and China, right to up to like the most amazing weather in, you know, in, in Asia, like, for example, in Thailand and uh, broader Europe, for example. And, uh, and she loved us, you know, she absolutely loved us. And so... Uh, I think she was very young at the time and maybe had some sparse memories of it. But when we went back again a couple of years later to, for example, Thailand, it all kind of came flooding back to her. So uh, I think for, I would say when you've got one child, there should be no barrier whatsoever. I, I mean, when you have two or three, yeah, you have to plan things a bit better. You might not have quite the same flexibility. You can still do it. Uh, but I think with one child for us, is a, that's, a, that's a no-brainer. For us, that's a, a, that shouldn't be a shouldn't be an issue as long as you're well prepared as long as you've got the right equipment and as long as you you have things reasonably well planned ahead you should be fine 
And do you have any, um, there, there's no sponsorships on this episode, but do you have any recommendations or experiences with the kind of health insurance you would use if you're going all around the world? Uh, well, the health insurance, uh, the ones that we've, uh, that we've seen uh, that, are, uh, that are certainly worth a look is you have the likes of Safety Wing and Insured Nomads. Um, but I think uh, you know, it is true that like, the health insurance piece, it does require a, you know, a little bit of research. And it's something to, to, to not forget about, particularly if you're going to certain countries. I mean, for example, if you're going to uh, the US, you really need to make sure you're plugged in. It can get very expensive very quickly. But uh, I think one of the things that we found helpful is actually looking and researching like every country is ranked on the quality of its of its uh, of its healthcare system so places like for example Thailand or, or Portugal you know, can be a fantastic healthcare system which is a little bit of extra peace of mind in case you want to have that if you're traveling abroad um, so i think there would be the you know, the things that I, that i would look at yeah, we're recording in November here, and this episode will probably come out in November. Um, so I'm just curious if you have any tips from your experience as as a nomad, where for these for us for us Northern Hemisphere people, the December to March, the escape the cold, ex- escape the snow. I'm Canadian; it doesn't snow as much in the Vancouver area, but or British Columbia, but it snows you know all across Canada. Um, where are the good destinations for December to March for Northern Hemisphere folk to go? Oh, great, uh, great question. I mean, uh, I, I think uh, the ones that you know, certainly do jump out is we had the most amazing time in Southeast Asia. It, it really is because it's that, that wonderful combination of a place like Thailand and and, uh, and Vietnam and that you get great weather. Um, you have a lovely local culture, people very open and friendly to digital nomad families, for example, very affordable. So it ticks so many of um, of those boxes. So I would say probably uh, Southeast Asia is uh, one of the ones that's uh, probably going going to win out there. And, and within that, certainly uh, the likes of Vietnam and Thailand. It's not the most original, but yeah, there's a reason why these kind of destinations come uh, come up uh, again, again, and again. You're looking out, say, three or four or five years, whether it's on the employer compliance side or just on the destination side, where do you think we're going to be in, in three to five years? Do you see things getting much bigger, more remote workers, different trends, well, new destinations? Yeah, I think one of the trends to watch out for is uh, yeah, work from anywhere has got a lot of the PR at the moment. So being able to temporarily work remotely, you know, laptop by the beach. I don't know how many times we've seen that in a photo in some you know, magazine online. But <laughs> I hate I, working at the beach, but it's yeah, a good exactly. photo. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, don't know, I don't know any long-term digital nomads that really much, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, yeah. um, but, but saying that, I think one of the things that's missing in the conversation, and I don't know the answer to this one, is the hire from anywhere piece. So if you look at the impact of outsourcing, of manufacturing that that had in the 1990s, that had a massive impact on society, on businesses, you know, even the political systems, the downstream impacts on certain communities and whatnot, and the pros and cons of that, for example. Um, and, and I think if you look at that, that had a huge impact. But I don't think people are fully realizing the impact of true hire from anywhere. Um, and I think maybe it's because maybe in the 1990s and 2000s, there was a little bit of a software, uh, let's say, outsourcing to certain countries that was done, and it didn't go brilliantly in some cases. Um and maybe they're thinking, oh, well, they don't see a huge threat from this. But I, I do see uh, that as something to watch out for. Uh, if you look at, you want to hire a developer in uh, I don't know, Silicon Valley, it's maybe half a million dollars. Uh, you want to hire the same uh, developer in, in, in India, it's, uh, it's going to be an absolute fraction of that. Um, and if companies do start engaging in true hire from anywhere, 
I think that will have a, a massive impact and we need to make sure that we manage. Yes, it will create opportunities for companies to lower their workforce costs, particularly if they go into a recession, uh, but being able to do it in a way that we manage it and uh, you know, work from anywhere and hire from anywhere, it brings tremendous opportunities if you have the ability to yourself work from anywhere. That's a privilege. Uh, but again, making sure from a broader societal perspective, we manage that shift in a way that's sustainable, uh, that we keep an eye on it. Because I, I do feel that is one that's going to have a, a massive impact that I don't think people have quite fully uh, realized. And it was a little bit the same with the outsourcing manufacturing. Didn't quite realize the impact until uh, a while after it. So it's one to keep an eye on. Yeah, I think the the triple impact at different stages of work from anywhere, hire from anywhere, plus AI, plus what might happen with some of this AR, VR, you know, Vision, Apple Vision Pro, put yep. your workspace onto a hologram or you know, right in front of you with infinite view view screen area, that could possibly create five years from now, you know, this image of uh, you know a Vision Pro wearing person or a goggle wearing person that doesn't need to bring their laptop, has everything they need, you know, looking through the viewport, travels around the world easily and talks to AI assistants and kind of a bit of a, a bit sci-fi and, and, and futurist. Um, and we, we might be looking at, you know, this acceleration where 2027 looks quite different. And we, we might start to be entering this sci-fi world that people imagined back in the sixties and seventies. Um, it didn't really, feel, I mean, smartphones were really cool, but I don't know. They didn't feel that sci-fi. It felt like, yeah, it's a computer in your pocket. It's really, it's world changing, but the kind of the AI talking assistants and the vision pro goggles and working mm. from anywhere th that all coming together, I think could create a society that looks, looks very different yeah, very soon. No, completely. I completely yeah. agree. And it's, I mean, the big word is disruption, I guess, isn't it? And when you have disruption, yeah. it's always very difficult to forecast where it's going to go and the impact it's going to have. But it, at least if we're kind of aware of some of the possibilities, you might have a better chance of, of managing them, I guess, a little bit. And that's just the one thing for me that uh, on that higher funnier piece I think it's probably underestimated the impact that that's likely to have. And it's going to give a really positive impact in some ways. And it's going to have, lead to some challenges we need to navigate along the way as well. Together, obviously, with AI. Right. So um, obviously, the CEO is someone who should be thinking about working with work from anywhere. Who, who else and what titles within an organization are the people that you tend to want to meet with, talk to, are the yeah. right decision makers to meet with you? Probably the people in global mobility or corporate tax or, or talent acquisition. You know, they would be the three functions mm -hmm. that would make the most sense because they're the ones that are dealing with these requests for work and hire from anywhere every single day of the week. Um, maybe in smaller companies, it might be the, the, the CFO, for example, or the HR director. Uh, but in the bigger companies, they would be the roles like talent acquisition, global mobility, and corporate tax are the ones we, we tend to deal with the most. Got it. And if uh, if people want to find more about you on the internet, uh, where should they go? What can we put in the show notes? Yeah, it's the uh, <laughs> website wfa.team, T-E-A-M, wfa.team. Great so domain. That's the domain. Yeah, very simple one. <laughs> <laughs> so wfa.team and uh, any social or should they just go straight to the website? Yeah, uh, they can uh, catch us on, uh, on LinkedIn um, and also Twitter, for example. Uh, so we hang about. So uh, they can catch any of those handles. I can share them with you afterwards and, and have them on the show notes. Sounds great. We'll do that. And uh, John, yeah, maybe just one last question. What are you most excited for in the next year, personally or professionally? I'm excited by the fact that uh, it's uh, probably taken a while for uh, a lot of companies to, to recognize, uh, on the one hand, the massive opportunity, but also the importance of navigating uh, these challenges of international work wisely. Um, and I feel, uh, yeah, for sure, I think it's certainly, if anything, in the last couple of months has to go by, 
I think it's going to be a very, very exciting year. And I'm, I'm excited about helping you know, a lot of companies being able to do this in a way that protects themselves for the risks, but also enables them to offer it to more and more people. Because that was one of the key motivations of why we got into this. We want to be able to offer more people the opportunity to be able to work from where it works best for them. So that's probably what excites me the most when I look at 2024. That's great, John. Thanks for coming on the uh, the podcast, and we're excited to have you on. It's I've been waiting for this episode for a long time, so I'm glad you glad you agreed to come on, and I'm looking forward to the next time I see you in in person. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Curtis. Mind yourself. Cheers.